Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. I invite you to join me this morning in the second chapter of the Old Testament prophecy of Habakkuk. And let's read the first four verses of Habakkuk, chapter 2. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see what he will say unto me and what I shall answer when I am reproved. And the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. By way of review, in the first chapter of this little three-chapter prophecy, we learned that Habakkuk was wrestling with some hard questions. His name means the wrestler, and wrestling he did. The first question he wrestled with was, why isn't God doing something? He says, how long, Lord, will I cry and thou wilt not hear? Chapter 1, verse 2. Even cry unto thee of violence and thou wilt not save. He's asking, how long, Lord? Why aren't you doing something? He's perplexed over the silence and apparent inactivity of God. I wonder if you've ever been there. I wonder if you've ever waited for the resolution to a problem in your life and you've said, Lord, are you listening? Why aren't you working? You know, as I look at the evil and wickedness of modern society, I sometimes say, Lord, how long will wickedness be allowed to prevail? How long will your people struggle? Are you hearing our prayers? Aren't you doing something? Perhaps you're that way in your life. Perhaps there's a young couple here who has wanted to have a child, but you've not been able yet to conceive. And you've been praying about it, but the answer has not been realized. And you say, Lord, will it ever happen? You're playing the waiting game. That happens in our lives, doesn't it? How long, O oh Lord? And we're perplexed. We're confused. We have questions. Well, the Lord answers Habakkuk in chapter 1 and says, I am doing something. <laughs> and you know, even though it may not appear in your life that God is hearing your prayers and that he's at work, the fact is, my friends, that God never sleeps nor slumbers. And he is active in the world that he has made. But you know, the answer that he gives to Habakkuk creates a new problem. Now he moves from the proverbial frying pan into the fire as God says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, if you please, to punish my people Judah. Well, that creates a new problem in Habakkuk's mind. First he asked, Lord, why don't you do something? And now he's asking, Lord, how can you use a more wicked nation than your people? 
to punish your covenant people. For Babylon was even worse than Judah was. So what Habakkuk is doing is he's looking around at the condition of the nation and he's perplexed that God allows the people to continue to decline and deteriorate. And when he brings that to the Lord in prayer, the Lord says, I'm going to bring the Babylonians in to judge my people Judah. And Habakkuk is perplexed by that as well. So first, he has a question concerning God's providence. Now he has a question concerning God's justice. Now I want you to notice at the end of chapter 1, again by way of review, how the prophet responds to his perplexing questions. He does three things. First, he prays in verses 12 and 13. And by the way, prayer is the best thing that you and I can do when we have questions in our minds. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do you look at the condition of the world in which you're living and you despair and you say, Lord, how long will truth be on the scaffold while wrong is on the throne? Then take it to the Lord in prayer. Admit it to him. Talk to him about it. He understands. You can be honest and forthright with God. Secondly, he meditates on the character of God. Again, in verses 12 and 13, you'll notice several attributes of God. He's a holy one. The holiness of God. He's a faithful God. He says, we shall not die. In Habakkuk 1 verse 12, we shall not die. That means, Lord, we are secure in your grace. The nation will not be utterly consumed. We shall not die. He knows that's because of God's covenant faithfulness. He talks about the power of God, almighty God. He talks about the everlasting nature of God. He's from everlasting to everlasting. He meditates on the character of God. By the way, that's a good practice for you and me. Have you learned to just reflect on who your God is? Every once in a while, my friends, take a step back and start preaching a sermon to yourself. And say, Mike Goins, your God is eternal. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Can you do that? Your God keeps his promises. He's faithful. Your God has all power. There's nothing too hard for him. My beloved, I encourage you to imitate the most powerful preacher you've ever heard and learn to preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself who your God is. That's what David did in 2 Samuel 30 verse 5 when it says his men spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and for his daughters. It was at Ziklag that the Amalekite raiders had come in and kidnapped their families and spoiled their goods while the army was away at battle. And David had failed to set a guard on duty and to defend home camp. And the Amalekites had done a number on their encampment. And David comes back and the people, his own men, now are wanting to stone him because He's let them down. Their families are gone. And David, it says, encouraged himself in the Lord his God. He preached the gospel to himself. He reminded himself of who his God was. I think the man who wrote the Psalms repeated many of those Psalms in his own mind. He probably said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He probably said, the Lord is my rock and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? He probably reiterated in his own mind the truths that he pinned down in those psalms. 
And I want to encourage you, dear friend, to learn again to encourage yourself in the Lord your God. Meditation. Meditation is not emptying your mind so that it can get in touch with the cosmic consciousness. Meditation, in a biblical definition of the term, is a matter of filling your mind with the truth that you've learned from the Word of God, reminding yourself of who your God is. So how does Habakkuk the prophet respond to his confusion? It's the same way you and I should respond when we have question marks in our hearts and minds, and we don't know, we don't understand, we are asking why and how long. It's the same thing you need to do when you're perplexed and I need to do. Habakkuk prays to God, he takes it to the Lord in prayer, and then he begins to reflect on the character of God, and then he resolves to patiently wait for God's answer. That's where we find him now in chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand upon my watch. You know, a watchman would often be positioned on a tower on the city walls. That's called his watchtower. He says, I'm going to stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and I will watch to see what God will say unto me. I'm going to wait on the Lord. My beloved, there are so many seasons in our lives when we have nothing to do except to wait on the Lord. You say, I don't know whether to go this direction or that. Then the proper answer is, don't make a decision right now. You say, well, life's passing me by. Well, God is never in so much of a hurry as we are. God doesn't get impatient, my beloved. I love a verse in the 30th chapter of Isaiah, I think it's verse 18, that says, Even so will the Lord wait, that he may be gracious unto you. And even so will he be exalted, that he may be glorified. And that verse simply means that God sometimes delays to answer so that the situation becomes more dire. And in our extremity, we look to him more resolutely and his power. He has an opportunity to show his power in a more significant way. You see, the, the worse it gets, it's only God who can help this situation and he gets all the glory for it. Even so will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you. God sometimes delays to answer your crisis so that he will get more glory. You'll know that when, it, when the problem's resolved, only God could have done it. And he gets all the praise. I've been there. That's been so true in my life. And you know, the Bible teaches us over and again the importance of waiting on the Lord. Now, patience doesn't come naturally to me. I'm not very good at it. I know it's a fruit of the Spirit. And I do have a little in my life. But what little I have is due to the Lord's grace. And it's not something that is natural to my temperament or personality. I struggle with impatience. I wonder if anybody in the congregation can identify this morning. But you know, if you're going to live the Christian life, and there are so many reasons around us to lose focus and to be confused and to be perplexed, and to say, why and how long? It's vitally important that we listen to verses like this in Lamentations 3.26. It is good for a man that he both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. Quietly wait. In other words, without murmuring and complaining, without shaking a fist of fury, without panicking, it is good for a man to both hope, yes, 
I'm hopeful that things will resolve in the future. And in the meantime, I will quietly wait. The hymn writer put it like this, O troubled heart, there is a home beyond this realm of sin and care, a home where troubles never come. I fain would be resting there, he says. Oh, wait, meekly wait, meekly wait and murmur not. That's quiet waiting. Listen to this verse, Psalm 27, 13. The psalmist says, I had fainted unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I wonder if you can identify with that verse. Has there ever been a time when you would have slipped into discouragement? I would have fainted. I would have lost my focus. I would have lost heart unless I had believed to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. What he's saying there is it was only my hope of a brighter day that kept me going in the meantime. I would have fainted unless I had believed to see. Believing to see is a good definition of faith or hope. Unless I had hope for a brighter day. And then he says, wait on the Lord. Psalm 27, the next verse, verse 14. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Now, repetition in the Bible is intended for emphasis. And we need this lesson driven home more than once. Wait. Again, I say, wait on the Lord. You need that reminder? Now, it's not pleasant. You know, when I was a boy, I would have asthma attacks during the night, and my parents would uh, take me to the Palmer County Community Hospital on the plains of West Texas, and I remember to this day the vivid antiseptic smell and the sights and sounds of that hospital in the middle of the night. Maybe it was 2 a.m. in the morning, and I would sit in the waiting room, and I remember the walls were a drab green And the floor tiles were cracked and broken where they had dropped something on those tiles and maybe there was a crack in them. And I remember this antiseptic smell in the air and the midnight sounds of the hospital as we waited for the doctor to get out of his bed and get there in order to give me a shot to relieve my asthma. It happened over and over again. I have to tell you, those were not pleasant times. Now, I was thankful for the medicine to relieve my breathing problem, but waiting was not pleasant. I've never been too good at waiting on a doctor. Have you? <laughs> You've got an appointment at 1.15, and it's 2.30, and you still haven't been called. That really tests my Christianity, I have to be honest with you. <laughs> but you know, in each of our lives, There will be opportunities and occasions where waiting on the Lord is vital. We tend to get in a hurry. We've got to solve these. I'm a problem solver. You know, I like to, if there's a problem, I like to find a solution and let's get to it. But that's not always the way God works. So if you're caught in a holding pattern in your life or in your church or in our country, You say, I just don't know what's going to happen to our country, Brother Mike. There's evil, wickedness all around. How should we respond? Well, pray about it. Meditate on who your God is and then get up on your watchtower and watch to see what the Lord will say to you. Just wait on the Lord. Psalm 40 verse 1 says, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me out of the horrible pit from the miry clay 
and he set my feet upon a rock, put a new song in my mouth, and established my goings. The psalmist says there was a time when I waited for God to move. You know, when God does decide to move, it's always the right time. So wait on the Lord. Isaiah 40, verse 31, that wonderful chapter on divine sovereignty ends with this promise. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You can fly above your troubles. You can run without weariness. You can walk consistently without fainting by the way. When you wait on the Lord, you will find revival in your soul. So Habakkuk says, I'm going to get in my watchtower and I'm going to wait for God to answer me. Verse 2, and the Lord answered me. And I want to say, when the Lord answered Habakkuk, it was a staggering and startling answer. In fact, if you look at the next chapter, there are two references in chapter 3 of Habakkuk that show us how God's surprising answer staggered the prophet. Listen to chapter 3, verse 2. O Lord, I have heard thy speech, and I was afraid. The answer that God gives to Habakkuk causes him to tremble. Verse 16, when I heard my belly trembled, we're in Habakkuk 3.16, when I heard, that is, I heard God's answer, here's the response that I felt in my body, my belly trembled, caused a sinking pit in his stomach. My lips quivered at the voice. Have you ever seen a little child who starts to cry and his or her lip quivers? Habakkuk says, I was so intimidated. I was so alarmed by God's answer that my lips quivered, my belly trembled. Rottenness entered into my bones. It was like I lost all structure to my body. And I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. I wondered when trouble comes, when God brings his judgment, is there any refuge for me? When he cometh upon the people, he will invade them with his troops. God's answer startles and staggers the prophet. That answer is in the second chapter of Habakkuk. Habakkuk has these questions. Chapter 1, God's answer to his questions is given us in chapter 2. And I want to just summarize it like this. The message of Habakkuk chapter 2 is payday is coming someday. God will one day judge Babylon, he tells Habakkuk, for her sins. In fact, her own sins will bring her down. That's God's answer to Habakkuk's questions. You know, sometimes judgment delays. God delays to judge sin. Have you ever been perplexed by the fact that the wicked seem to get by with their wickedness? Psalm 50 verse 21 says, These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. God says, You've committed all these sins, and he enumerates them in the 50th Psalm. He says, You've done all these things, and I didn't respond immediately. I kept silence. And the result was, Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. You know, people develop their opinions of God, you know, when judgment is delayed. They think sometimes judgment has been denied. And they say, well, God's just like us. He's just letting people get by with sin. You know, as I think about abortion and sexual deviancy and the redefinition of marriage and the turning of the moral law of God on its head, as I think about all of the ills 
of modern culture, I wonder sometimes, Lord, why don't you do something? <laughs> Lord, are you hearing our prayers? Why don't you intervene and stop it? Why don't you judge the wicked and set all wrongs right? Have you ever found yourself struggling with the problem of injustice? And here's the answer, dear friends. God is not like us. You thought that I was such a one as yourself, but I will reprove thee and set them in order before thine eyes. Here's a fact, my friends. First Timothy 5.24 says, Some men's sins go beforehand to judgment, and other men they follow after. And what that verse means is simply sometimes judgment falls immediately upon sin. You remember when King Herod, when the people said at his speech that he's a god, Instead of saying, no, I'm not, I'm just a man, he took the glory to himself and God struck him immediately with worms so that he died. Can you imagine his body just being consumed right in front of all those people? That was an immediate judgment. The story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, when they lied to the Holy Ghost, they fell down dead on the spot. That was an immediate judgment. Some men's sins go beforehand to judgment. God judged them immediately. Nadab and Abihu in Numbers chapter 10, Aaron's two boys, when they, with a maverick spirit, innovated with the worship of God and burned strange fire upon the altar instead of taking the fire from the perpetual flame that God had prescribed, they brought their matches to church and lit a fire. God struck them dead on the spot and said, learn from this that I intend to be sanctified in all them that draw nigh unto me. Now, sometimes judgment falls immediately, but sometimes judgment appears to be delayed. Some men sins, judgment follows after. But you know, it's a fact. Even if judgment hasn't fallen on your sins or mine or on the world's sins today, and we say, Lord, where is the justice that is due to these wrongs that we see around us? The fact is, my friends, no man will ever really get away with anything. We don't get away with anything. Every disobedience ultimately will receive a just recompense or reward. And that's why Revelation 13.10 is so important. I think this is the New Testament version of our text today. Revelation 13.10 talks about the mark of the beast and those that dwell upon the earth who worship him. That is, these are people whose only interests are worldly or earthly. They have no heavenly interest. And he says, their names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. These are not children of God. They are worshipers of the beast. And the beast, of course, is the personification of evil power. And it says, if any man have an ear, Revelation 13, 9, let him hear, Everybody can't understand this. You have to have an ear to hear it. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. Notice, the person who has brought God's people into bondage is going to go into bondage himself. This is a promise of judgment on the beast. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. Now that last expression is what I want. You say, Brother Mike, that kind of scares me to think that this world is going to become increasingly demonic and evil and wicked. Well, just look around. It shouldn't scare you from the Bible. You see it on the evening news every day. <laughs> and here's God's message to it. Those that 
persecute his people will be troubled and persecuted themselves by the Lord. Justice will be served. I'm so glad that God is just. I'm so glad that we have a God, my friends, who's not wishy-washy, effeminate, and soft on truth and justice. May I say that every wrong will be made right. Have you ever suffered an injustice in your life? You say, oh yeah. I had a neighbor borrow a garden rake from me one time, and that was 20 years ago. He still has it in his garage. Every time I drive by his house, I'm just eaten up with bitterness that he would still have my rake. Well, that's an injustice, but it's not the worst kind of injustice in the world. Have you ever had your name dragged through the mud and it was unjustified? That could happen to you. It's happened to many of us in life. You ever had somebody break their promise to you and you say, this isn't right. This just isn't right. You know, there is such a thing as right and wrong. And have you ever been on the short end of justice? That's what I'm asking. Has somebody ever committed a crime against you and they were not held accountable? I mean, not as much as you thought that perhaps they should. I want to tell you, dear friends, we can't get away from injustices in this world. And the ultimate injustice is that the righteous would be persecuted by the wicked. Well, this verse in Revelation 13.10 says the saints need to be patient and have faith because he that leadeth into captivity will go into captivity. That's exact justice. And he that killeth with the sword shall be killed by the sword. Again, retributive justice. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. Patience. Have we been talking about patience this morning? Waiting on the Lord? Patience. And have we been talking about the just shall live by faith? That's Habakkuk 2. Patience and faith. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. We are people who are waiting for the Son to be revealed from heaven, the Lord Jesus. And when he comes, he will put down all enemies under his feet, even death. You know, I hate death. It's the ultimate enemy. It hurts like a punch in the gut. It's just mind-boggling to think that the righteous perish and good men are taken away, none laying it to heart, that they are taken from the evil that is to come. You know, death, my friends, is the wages of sin. God's perfect world did not originally have death in it. You say, well, death's just a part of life. It wasn't originally. Man would have lived forever had sin not entered the scene. The wages of sin is death. The reason we have death, my friends, is because of sin. And it is the ultimate pain that sin has brought into this world. I hate it. I despise it. I'm telling you, my friends, that one day the Lord will say, I will ransom thee from the power of the grave. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. We're worshiping one this morning who has already conquered death. Hell and the grave. Our Lord Jesus Christ lives never to die again. I am he that was dead, but behold, I'm alive forevermore. And because he lives, we shall live also. How wonderful to know that there's a world beyond this world. You see, that's faith and patience. We're not there yet. We have to wait. We have to wait on it. And we have to believe God's word. For the just shall live by faith. That's Habakkuk 2.4. We're waiting 
for the Lord to answer. Now, we're where Habakkuk was in chapter 2. We're living our lives right now in the presence of an ungodly world. But God tells Habakkuk that the wicked will not have the last word. Sin will not carry the day. The saints know that God will balance the scales of justice and that injustice will not persist forever. Thomas Jefferson said in 1784, I tremble for my country when I consider that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. That's true for America this morning, my friend. God is just and his justice cannot sleep forever. In fact, it may be that he is frowning upon our nation today because of many of our national sins. That many of the problems we see around us are manifestations of divine judgment upon our sins in the past as a country. But I'm telling you, as far as humanity is concerned, there's coming a day in which God will make all wrongs right. Therefore, the people of God must live by patience and faith. As verse 4 of chapter 2 says, Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but, notice the contrast, the just shall live by faith. Now, by the way, Habakkuk 2.4, this expression, the just shall live by faith, is the text for three books in your New Testament. There are three New Testament letters that develop Habakkuk 2.4. That's how important this verse is. The book of Romans, you'll notice that verse is quoted in Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. The book of Galatians, it's quoted in Galatians 3.11. And the book of Hebrews, the just shall live by faith. In fact, you find that in Hebrews chapter 10, I think about verse 37 or 38. And the whole 11th chapter of Hebrews is a development of that principle. The faith chapter, the just. Now, who are the just? They're the righteous. The word just is a synonym for righteousness. Well, is there anybody who's righteous in this world? Yes, but they're not righteous in and of themselves. If you find a righteous person, I can tell you they're righteous because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. We're righteous because Christ's obedience and righteousness has been credited to our account. He took my place on the cross, and what he did, I get the credit, get the benefits of. You know, it's been imputed. It's been placed to my account so that now I'm in, I have a surplus. <laughs> I did have a deficit. I was 10,000 talents in debt without a farthing to pay, but I'm telling you, Jesus paid my debt, my sin debt, and he has now credited to me his perfect obedience so that when God sees me through the blood and merit of Jesus Christ, he sees me as everything the law requires me to be. That's what it means to be justified, by the way. Justified, the Bible doctrine of justification. And the just shall live. Now notice he didn't say the just shall get life by faith. You don't become a child of God by believing, by your faith. You become a child of God by his sovereign grace, right? It's the direct work of the Holy Spirit of God in the heart that makes a dead sinner a child of God. It's what makes you alive. But we get a living by faith. There's a difference in having life and getting a living. I had life nine months prior to July 19th, 1962, or 
thereabouts, give or take a few weeks. I had life. I was alive in my mother's womb. Life begins at what? Conception. But you know, ever since I was given life, I've been trying to get a living. When I was a boy growing up, folks would ask people that they met, what do you do for a living? You ever heard that question? What do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a farmer. I'm a carpenter. I'm a teacher. I'm a nurse or whatnot. A living. Well, that doesn't mean what do you do in order to be alive. It means what do you do to sustain life and to nurture life. You know, God gave us spiritual life. But my friends, we get a living by faith. The just shall live by faith. Now, here's the question in Habakkuk chapter 2. How can God's people live a godly life in a world of ungodliness? Here's Habakkuk saying, Lord, the world's in such a bad shape. And why aren't you doing something? And God says, I am. I'm bringing judgment upon it. And Habakkuk says, Lord, then how shall we live? God says, the just shall live by faith. My beloved, if you don't want to be caught up in the judgment that's coming on this world, then keep living by faith. That's the practical lesson here in Habakkuk. Now notice in verses 2 and 3, we're not going to get to all of our lesson this morning which is okay. We'll just uh, come back next time, but at least we've gotten Habakkuk out of his watchtower. I know he's glad to get down. He's been up there for a long time. And I know he's glad to uh, get down and to start getting a few of God's answers. But these answers are not simple answers. Here's the point that I make. We are perplexed in life. We have our questions, don't we? Maybe you have a whole bunch of them this morning. Why? What's happening? Why would God not intervene? How long is it going to be? You have all of your perplexities, and I do as well. Well, here's God's answer. Don't despair. I am doing something. Judgment is coming. And in the meantime, you need to keep your eyes on me and live by faith. That's that's the message of this book. So that's a good enough answer to keep us going. But I want to show you this in verses 2. Habakkuk is instructed to record the answer that God reveals to him for the benefit of others in the future. He says, write the vision. The Lord answered me and said, write the vision and make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it. Now God gives Habakkuk a vision and you're going to read that vision in chapter two. Again, it's a vision that made him afraid as chapter three, verse two says, that made his belly tremble, his lips quiver, chapter three, 16, that caused rottenness to enter into his bones and that caused him to tremble within himself. It's a staggering and stunning vision that God gives the prophet. And you can read it in chapter 2. And it consists of five woes. Woe to him that covets an evil covetousness. Chapter 2, verse 9. Woe to him that builds a town with blood. God is pronouncing a curse. That's what the word woe means in the Bible. It's a divine malediction, the opposite of a divine benediction. A benediction is a blessing, but a woe, a malediction, is a curse. You remember Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are they that... That's a benediction. He's speaking kindly and well of them. It's it's a word of blessing, but a malediction is a word of cursing and judgment. Woe. 
Jesus told his disciples, blessed are the pure in heart, but he told the Pharisees, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. When God says woe, you better batten the hatches because judgment is coming. And here he says five times, woe to Babylon, woe to the Chaldeans. And who was the king of Babylon? Do you remember? Nebuchadnezzar, right? Nebuchadnezzar? That great king, Babylon was the world empire of that day. What is happening is Habakkuk is prophesying about there's coming a time when the most powerful nation on the earth is going to swoop down into Judah and take us into captivity for 70 years. And it's all a judgment from God on the sins of the nation. And here's God's message, Babylon's day is coming. I'm going to use them to accomplish my purpose right now, but they're not going to get away with their crimes. Payday is coming someday. That's the message of Habakkuk chapter 2. And God says, I want you to write the vision. I want to say God's revelation in Scripture, what's written down. That's what the word Scripture means, to write down, sacred writings. God's revelation in Scripture is the foundation of our faith. You want to live by faith? You need to read the Word of God. You need to keep your focus on Scripture. We sing about that, don't we? How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith. Where? In His excellent Word. You see, faith is not just something subjective or based on your emotions. Somebody says, I believe. I'm, I'm trying to tap into my emotions Faith is not something that comes from inside of you. Faith is a response to God's revelation in Scripture. Faith is a response to the Word of God. If I ever write a dictionary, that'd be a good definition to put for faith. God speaks, faith responds. God says, this is true. Faith says, I believe it. So he says, write the vision. God's going to give him a vision, but he says, I want you to write it down so that other people might read it and be able to run. Now, we're running a race today, aren't we? How are we running the race? Because God has spoken. He's revealed his truth in Holy Scripture. In fact, our text says, the just shall live by faith. You want to know what that means? Look at another verse that parallels it. The just shall live by faith. Listen to Matthew 4.4. 4. Man shall live, the just man shall live, shall live, by faith, by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What does it mean to live by faith? It means to live by God's word. Now, I'm so thankful God gave us this book because it is a compass. It's a guidebook. And it will shine the light on your path. It's a lamp to our feet, a light unto our path. And if you want to live by faith, you will find a reason to trust God when you remind yourself of his revelation in Scripture. So write the vision and make it plain upon tables. Did you know the essential message of God's word is transparent and clear? It's not obscure. Now, I know there are obscure passages in this Bible, but the basic message is very clear. You don't have to read between the lines. Somebody says, what are the hidden truths of the Bible? I have no idea. In fact, that whole approach to read between the lines and that it's mysterious and it means something other than what it says, I think is a trick 
that spiritual leaders use to try to keep other people in bondage to them. The message of Scripture is essentially clear and transparent and perspicuous. Okay? The Bible means what it says and says what it means. That's not to say, again, that we can figure it all out, but yet when it says God created the heavens and the earth, you don't have to interpret that. It means what it says. God made it. When it says Jesus is the Son of God, you say, well, I don't understand how that could be true. Well, just accept it. Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. When it says he rose again bodily from the dead, you say, what does that really mean, Brother Mike? It means he rose again bodily from the dead. He's coming again the second time. The message of Scripture is apparent. It's not obscure. So write the vision, make it plain upon table so that he may run that reads it. My friends, you can run, you can walk the walk of faith, you can live the life of faith based on this revelation of God that he's given us in this book. The just shall live by faith. Thank God we have an objective standard, not just our subjective emotions, by which to live our lives. And then secondly, and finally this morning, the life of faith involves taking the long-range view. Listen to verse 3. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. That means that it's future. But at the end, when it happens, it shall speak and not lie. Though it tarry, that is, you say, well, when is it going to happen? When is it going to happen? Though it tarry, wait for it. For it will surely come. It will not Terry. Interestingly, when this verse, Habakkuk 2.3, is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 10, it's quoted in the context of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to the difference. Habakkuk 2.3 says, though it tarry, wait for it. Hebrews 10.34 says, though he tarry, he will surely come. Not it, but he talking about Jesus, and it's talking about the Redeemer's blessed and glorious return. My beloved, may I say the ultimate long-range view is the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's where all the scales of justice will be balanced and all wrongs will be made right. So God's answer to our perplexing questions is in verse 4, the just shall live by faith. To live by faith means that we keep our eyes on the future based on the truths revealed in the Word of God right now, and we're patient. So I don't know where this message finds you today. Maybe you're here and you say, Brother Mike, I'm in the waiting room, and I don't like the smell and the sounds and the scenery around me. It's not real exciting. My life is just in a holding pattern. And I'm wondering when I can get on with it because time is passing me by. I'm telling you, wait on the Lord. Trust also in Him and He will bring it to pass. And whatever your questions may be, Lord, how long? Why? What's happening? Lord, I have all of these questions. We don't have to understand it all as long as we know that He's in control. As Habakkuk 2.20 says, the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. He's in sovereign control. I rejoice in the sovereignty of God. It's the most comforting doctrine in the Bible, so far as I'm concerned. It doesn't mean that everything that happens is God's will. We know there is such a thing as disobedience, sin, and God is not pleased with that. But it does mean, my friends, 
that behind it all, whatever's happening on the world stage, behind it all, God is enthroned. Nothing can change that. Nothing will defeat him. He will win in the end. Our trust is in the living, sovereign God. Peace.